This podcast series is based on a book called Beyond Reasonable Greed, Why Sustainable Business is a Much Better Idea by Wayne Visser and Clem Sumter, read by myself, Wayne Visser. Vision, a jumbo quest. Shape-shifting seldom happens in countries or companies without visionary leadership. Like the revolutionary philosophers and scientists of centuries past, somebody has to be able to step out of the parochial present and see the bigger picture of the future. And like those historical reformists, today's innovative leaders walk a tightrope between being recognized and celebrated as visionaries and being regarded as crackpots to be locked up or heathens to be burned at the stake. The great thing about creating a sustainable future is that it is an inspiring ideal, something that, like the elephant, is bigger than ourselves, a little frightening, somehow magical, an exciting challenge at the very least. And in today's barren desert of materialism and secularism, people are crying out for something inspirational, even sacred, to quench their thirst for meaning. Sustainability is that oasis shimmering on the horizon. It is what we call the wow calling, the hunger for something to believe in, the eternal yearning to make a positive difference. Often this profound revelation is accomplished through partaking in a vision quest, The vision quest is a sacred ritual common to many ancient indigenous cultures. It is performed at critical times in the life of an individual, such as entering adulthood, choosing a vocation, or becoming an elder. Likewise, the vision quest can apply at a community level, where a tribe are seeking peace, needing rain, or changing their leadership ranks. The traditional process goes something like this. The questers leave the safe environment of their community and travel to a remote, isolated place. Alone in this wilderness environment, as they fast and pit themselves against the elements, they begin to face their psychological fears and emotional demons. These invisible trials prepare their consciousness to receive a vision. The revelation may come as a sign, a symbol, a dream or a vision – It may manifest as a cloud shape or an animal messenger or simply a thought quake. When the questers return, the diviner and the elders help with the interpretation of their visions and what new meaning it heralds for the life of the individual or the community. With the era of sustainability looming as a new stage in the life of business and nations, companies and countries need to go on their own vision quest. This could take many different forms. A personal Damascus-type experience by the CEO or the president, perhaps catalyzed by his or her children or grandchildren, or the demands for a policy response to a major strategic change, such as clearer evidence that carbon consumption should be constrained, or a paradigm shift in the wake of a crisis, such as the terrorist attack on New York on September 11, 2001. Interface, a Fortune 1000 company and the world's largest producer of contract commercial carpets, is a good example of the potency of discovering an inspiring vision. 
1973, Ray Anderson left an executive position with the well-known U.S. carpet manufacturer and risked his life savings and the investments of good friends to found his own company, which became Interface. By 1994, the company was already extremely successful, but it began to hear a strange rumble in the wind, inquiries from customers about the environmental aspects of Interface's products. Interface, like many companies have done, stood on the cusp of a strategic decision. They could ignore the rumbling, believing it to be a bit of harmless corporate indigestion, which is to be expected with a growing appetite for profits, or they could listen more carefully. After all, it might be an approaching tidal wave. Then again, it could also be a form of intelligent communication, like the infrasonic language of elephants on the horizon. Needless to say, Anderson heard the call, if somewhat reluctantly at first. The company's research arm had been charged with coming up with an environmental policy. They in turn asked Anderson, as CEO at the time, to launch the environmental task force by giving them an environmental vision. Anderson recalls that he didn't want to make that speech because he had no vision other than compliance with the law. Then he came across Paul Hawkins' book called The Ecology of Commerce and felt its message he recalls like a spear in the chest. Anderson claims that in a heartbeat he had found the vision he was looking for, together with a powerful sense of urgency to implement it. He saw that business was part of the problem and part of the solution, and he had the courage to say, someone has to lead, why not us? Anderson offered the task force a vision, to make Interface the first name in industrial ecology worldwide through substance, not words. He gave them a mission, too, to convert Interface into a restorative enterprise. First, Interface would attain a state of sustainability, and then it would become restorative by putting back more than the company takes from the earth by helping others to reach sustainability even competitors. How he translated this vision into practice is dealt with in a later section. The provocative vision of Anita Roddick, founder of the international cosmetics company The Body Shop, is another example of how shape-shifting can be catalyzed. As far as I'm concerned, she says in her book Business as Unusual, the business has existed for one reason only to allow us to use our success to act as a force for social change, to contribute to the education and consciousness raising of our staff, to assist development in the third world, and above all, to protect the environment. What we are trying to do is to create a new business paradigm, simply showing that business can have a human face and a social conscience. She continues that for the body shop, the business of business is to keep the company alive and breathlessly excited, to protect the workforce, to be a force for good in society, and then to think about the speculators. She believes that if companies are in business solely to make money, you can't fully trust whatever else they do or say. She believes business is a renaissance concept where the human spirit comes into play 
It does not have to be drudgery. It does not have to be the science of making money. It can be something that people feel genuinely good about, but only if it remains a human enterprise. How do you ennoble the spirit when you are selling something as inconsequential as a cosmetic cream? asks Roddick rhetorically. She answers that you do it by creating a sense of holism or spiritual development, of feeling connected to the workplace and the environment, and of forging relationships with one another. It's how you make Monday to Friday a sense of being alive rather than a slow death. How you give people a chance to do a good job by making them feel good about what they are doing. The spirit soars when you are satisfying your own basic material needs in such a way that you are also serving the needs of others, honorably and humanely. And she adds, under these circumstances, I can even feel great about a moisturizer. Of course, her detractors will argue that she has had to step down from pole position in the company precisely because she wasn't businesslike enough in conducting the company's affairs. They will point to the very disappointing performance of the share price over the last 10 years, and they will gloat over the fact that her downfall was brought about by the supermarket chains that she derided. Yet there is no denying that she has left an indelible mark on the corporate world and that she is not done with her shape-shifting career yet. While giving up her hands-on role, she is staying on as a non-executive director and consultant at the body shop and will no doubt continue her campaign for principled leadership in business. As a side note, Anita Roddick since passed away, but the spirit continues in the company. In South Africa, the Spear Company is another example of visionary elephant leadership. Set in the idyllic landscape of Stellenbosch in the Cape, Spear has operated a wine farm for three centuries before the then 90-hectare estate was bought by businessman Dick Enthoven. Having led an extremely successful career in South Africa's mainstream business sector, Enthoven wanted to leave a legacy to give something back. Transforming Spear became the center point of his vision quest. In 150 years from now, says Enthoven, I want people to look back and say that they did a good job. The way this vision has unfolded in practice is a colorful story full of inspiration. It started with Enthoven embracing the cultural heritage of the area. Speer set about restoring the old Cape Dutch historical buildings on the state that date back to 1680 and turning these into conference and restaurant facilities. Next, a hotel complex named The Village was constructed drawing on the Cape Malay's influences for its architectural style and on ecological principles for its design. An open-air amphitheatre was also built, and an arts trust started to develop and showcase local talent. The last initiative led to the recent performance of Carmen in the West End of London by a South African cast of newcomers, which drew rave reviews from music critics of leading English newspapers. One of Enthoven's key concerns in the Spear project was the restoration of equity in a society that has been distorted by social engineering, in other words, apartheid. For this reason, former farm laborers have been given an ownership and management stake in the vineyards, 
and vegetable farming enterprises. In addition, Speer has embarked on establishing an off-site eco-village, which will eventually incorporate schools, offices, craft workshops, an arts venue, a community centre, and homes for almost 150 local families. There have been various ecological reforms at Speer as well. With 140 hectares of land set aside for organic farming, it is now one of the largest commercial organic farms in South Africa, cultivating both vegetables and vines. Speer has also formed a subsidiary called Green Technologies, which acquired the South African license for an environmentally friendly waste treatment system called Biolytics Filter. The installation of this biolytic filtration system at the Speer Village is the first of its kind on this scale in the world. The vision around which Enthoven has been building Speer's renaissance is now classical, triple bottom line thinking, underpinned by a set of inspiring values. The latter include the following, custodians of culture, financial viability and economic sustainability, unexpected pleasures, places of the soul, sustainable resource use, community building, and learning for development. As airy-fairy as these values may sound, Eve Annika, who is the spear executive responsible for implementing them in all operations, can certainly not be accused of living with her head in the clouds. We are not on some sort of moral trip here, she says. We're dealing with practical technologies and looking for better ways of doing things. We learn as we go and we face contradictions all the time. What good is organic farming when women are subject to regular abuse at home or when babies are born with fetal alcohol syndrome? We live in a violent society. We are not pretending to solve all the problems, but we are acknowledging that the problems exist and we work at resolving them where we can. Adrian Enthoven, chairman of Spear Holdings and director of Biolytics, sums up their philosophy as follows. Our view is not purely altruistic. The whole world is moving in this direction, towards ecological sustainability. Economic imperatives are driving it, and economics relies on social sustainability. These three issues are inextricably linked, and that is why at Speer we call for accountability in terms of the triple bottom line. Financial viability, social equity, and ecological sustainability. There are various other examples of companies that have experienced successful vision quests involving sustainability. Mr. Kaku, former chairman of the Canon Group of Companies, speaks for all these pioneers when he muses that in the highest stage of evolution of a corporation, a global consciousness emerges and the corporation sees itself contributing to the whole of humankind. This is founded on the Japanese philosophy of Kiyosei, living and working together for the common good. Jumbo visions like these act like sprinklings of magic dust in the business of shape-shifting. They work not because they intellectually convince us, but because they emotionally engage us and spiritually inspire us. They work because we are all, as humans, on a vision quest for meaning in our lives.